I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is fantasy author Laura Ann Gilman. She's written more than a dozen books, including the Devil's West trilogy, the Cosa Nostradamus books, and the Nebula Award-nominated The Vine Art War trilogy. Her new book, Uncanny Times, follows two huntsmen, a brother and a sister, as they set out to hunt down a brutal killer in upstate New York. Laura Ann, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm delighted to be here. Your new book is called Uncanny Times. Tell us just a little bit about it. Oh, uh, a little bit about it rather than me just going on and on and on for hours. <laughs> okay. It is a historical fantasy, a dark-edged historical fantasy set in 1913 that follows a brother and sister monster hunting team who are sent to the upstate New York region to investigate a murder that turns out to be far more than it seems, uh, which is kind of the the elevator pitch, if you will. <laughs> it is very much a... Um, I joke that it is it is the result of 15 years of watching Supernatural and yelling at the screen every time they got world building wrong and then saying to myself, okay, Sal, how would you do it then? And having put, having put that challenge to myself, I was like, okay, now I have to do it. I was reading this and uh, thinking this could be an alternate universe precursor to, uh, <laughs> to the Winchesters. <laughs> so, so good job with that. Um, it's set in 1913. What was it about that year, that time period, that drew you in? Oh, uh, my background is in history. That was what I studied in college. It's always been a fascination of mine, and specifically social history. The period 1911, 1912, 13, 14 was a lot of times it's referred to as the Gilded Age if you're only looking at the upper class. But what was going on in the rest of the country and in the rest of the world was a lot darker uh, and also a lot brighter. I mean, science was becoming a thing. Uh, modern civilization was becoming a thing as we think of it in a lot of ways. But there was also so much tumult and um, violence happening. The unions were becoming stronger, which meant that there was a much stronger pushback. There was a lot of violence there. It was the time of the uh, suffragettes or suffragists, depending on uh, where you're coming from, and the violence that was perpetuated against them. Just immense amount of change in society. And when I started thinking about this book and when I wanted to set it, I was looking also at what was happening in our own time. And I was kind of horrified and fascinated to see all of the, the echoes. I like to say that history repeats itself because we don't listen. And it very much felt like that in a lot of ways. So writing about that period also helped me deal with what we were going through and what we are going through um, and to work out my own feelings about that, I guess. But it really is just an absolutely fascinating period that most people only know the surface of. And I wanted to get a little deeper than that. I, I want to circle back around to talk more about the history in a moment, but I also want to talk about your two main characters. This is Aaron and Rosemary Harker. They're brother and sister, which is not necessarily something you see um, in the monster hunting genre books. What was it about that kind of relationship dynamic that appealed to you? I very much wanted it to be an unbalanced sibling pair, if you will. 
in the terms that uh, Rosemary is the older by several years. She's very definitely the leader, but in that time period, in that society, she couldn't be. Uh, the huntsman, she is seen as an equal, but in the wider American society, she's very definitely not. People will defer to her brother all the time. So I wanted to be able to play with that. And I wanted to be able to play with the differences in the genders, despite the fact that they've been brought up together, that they are, that they, they're very fond of each other. They work well as a pair, but there is at the same time, very much um, a struggle between the two of them in terms of understanding each other. It was, it was really interesting. And I was especially interested in Rosemary's character because again, she's in 1913. She's smart. She's fierce. She's opinionated. She's a woman. She herself is not entirely sure about some of the movements going on around her. And I don't know that I would necessarily call her a revolutionary. And yet she hunts monsters and she's good at her, you know, this, this part of her life. How special is she for you? She is very much somebody that I'm not sure that she and I would be friends, but I would be fascinated to um, sit down and have a drink with her. Uh, tea, of course, in that I really wanted her to not be this uh, superhero. Neither of them are, are, in that regard, superheroes. They're not even really heroes. They're just out there doing a job. And I wanted her to be representative of a lot of the women of that period who were strong, who were smart, who were fierce, and didn't get an outlet for that. Rosemary has been given an outlet. And she is determined to absolutely be the best that she can be in, through that outlet. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. You don't necessarily get to do or be the person that you think you are. And if somebody gives you the opportunity, you go for it. And I, think, I, I just think that's fabulous about her. Do you think that she changed over the course of the book? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think she's realized it. But every time that you, they, they learn new things, they learn things that change what they thought they knew in the course of the book. And that changes you. That shifts your, your worldview. Um, is she acting on it by the end of the book? Not entirely, a little bit. Uh, both of them are. Both of them have had to step back and reevaluate things that they thought they knew. I also was intrigued by Aaron's character because I I don't think you came right out and said it, but he struck me as very uh, neurodivergent. The yeah. you know, reminding himself that this is how I'm supposed to behave in this situation and kind of being very methodical about it. So how intentional was that for you? It wasn't intentional at all. As a matter of fact, I was a third of the way through the draft before I suddenly realized, oh, this is the key to his personality. I am not a person who thinks out my characters ahead of time. I meet them as I write their dialogue, which is why I usually have about 20,000 words at the start of a book that just get thrown out because we're getting to know each other. But with Aaron, I knew that he was going to be very pragmatic and um, think a certain way. But he was also, in my mind, the one who loved novels. He was the one who was the polygot who, who knew all the languages. And it wasn't until I was writing a particular scene that all of a sudden I just kind of stopped and looked at the page and went, oh, duh, he's neurodivergent. Okay. And I never really qualified him in that sense in terms of how or why. It's just, this is how he thinks. This is how he reacts. And this 
is how he would be categorized in society now. Uh, you read, since you read the book, you know why he is the way he is. And we'll be playing with that a little bit more, I think, but it was not planned. It was simply, this is how the character evolved. This is how it made sense. And it added another level to their relationship. So when you're, when you're feeling your way into these characters and getting to know them that way, do you find that frustrating as part of your writing process or it just is what it is? It's my favorite part. <laughs> um, I'll be writing along, I'll be writing a scene that I know exactly what's supposed to happen in the scene. And I think I know how my characters are gonna react. And then I'll be just writing, the words will be flowing nicely. And um, all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, okay, I didn't expect them to respond like that, but no, that makes sense, that works. And then I have to sort of go back and think, okay, yeah, all right, I see where this, it always grows organically out of what has come before. They tend not to surprise me out of left field, but it's just, I joke that when I'm writing, the my lizard brain has gone ahead and done all the hard work and my mammal brain is just following along, writing the story, taking all the credit, thinking, oh, wow, I'm fabulous. But my lizard brain has already figured out, okay, this is who these characters are and how they're gonna react. Between the two, between those two halves of my brain, the character is there. I just don't know it yet. I, I also really enjoyed the way, I guess, the world building around the uncanny. Um, a lot of times we will either hear the fae or monsters or cryptids. And for this, it just kind of feels like everybody's in there in that in that kind <laughs> of world. So t talk a little bit about the supernatural world building of this particular story. I've realized over the years that a lot of what I write about is... Um, communities and the overlapping of communities and how survival is dependent on interaction. And in this case, it very much was a sense of setting these books in this period in North America. There are so many different communities, so many different ways of waves of immigration, so many people who have been there already clashing against each other and, and sometimes melding together. And I wanted the supernatural world, the uncanny world to mirror that in that it wasn't just the native mythology the, that was extant in the, on the continent to begin with, but also everything we brought with us from wherever we came from and that includes everything, that includes the, the horrific and the helpful. And how we think about them shapes them. What was it about upstate New York that you felt was right as the setting for the book? And this is around, if this is around the Rochester region, I, I, I would like to say, <laughs> just yes. you know, for those listening. Yeah, um, I'll be honest, I have a friend who lives up there and we were talking about settings and I was like, you know, your area sounds like a really good place for a supernatural murder to happen. And then I laughed and admitted as yes, it probably was. And then I just said, all right, let me think about this. And it seemed like a really good place. I went to school in mid-state New York. So I had a little bit of a feel for the cadences and my family's from New England. So again, I've got a sense of the, the personality of the land. And I decided that this my characters were going to be set in New England and sort of extend out 
so I could I got to play in upstate New York. I would uh, get to play in New Jersey and, and Connecticut and Massachusetts and all these areas, even Ohio if I wanted to. Um, and that just it just gave me a nice uh, base to work from where there was a lot of movement of people, where there was a density of population and where there were pockets where the uncanny happening wouldn't surprise anybody at all. I also love that it's a small town mystery where, of course, you get the added challenges of everybody being up in each other's business, but not wanting to talk <laughs> about it. And there being secrets and glances and things that uh, are not spoken of. So are you are you a fan of that kind of mystery setting? It's too good a tool not to use, I think is really the only answer. When you've got um, a situation where everybody knows something, but everybody doesn't know all the things that is uh, ripe for conflict it's ripe for secrets and it's ripe for revelations so yeah it's that's catnip to a writer one of your supporting characters is madeline baker who's the town librarian and just what is it about writing a librarian that is so much fun because it really comes across in this story that there's just a little bit of glee in describing the library and describing her and um, the, maybe I'm reading too much into this, the possible flirting and uh, undertones going on between Madeline and Rosemary. Oh, there's definitely flirting. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, part of it is simply that going back to what you said about small towns, if you want to know something back then, librarians were often also the town historians. So if there was something going on, you would go and ask them politely, you know, as indirectly as you could. Uh, they were repositories of more than just lending books. They usually had stuff that we would now found, find in a town hall, for example. But also librarians just like to know stuff, you know? And when I was writing Maddie, she definitely is... Um, she is a wonderful character. Picking my words carefully, because if I say too much, I give away too much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I really did enjoy writing her. Um, I felt very sympathetic towards her and, and what she wanted out of life. But I also found that she was an interesting foil to Rosemary uh, in terms of the paths that their lives have taken. And I really wanted to be able to hold that up to the light. I, I think it's always fascinating, especially for a supporting character who shines so much that as a reader, I'm just like, can you come back around and write a book about her, please? <laughs> um, can we can we circle back here? So um, just so, so well done with that. I, I wanted to ask, I, I'm assuming that you did a lot of research for this book mm -hmm. um, because the the world building and the and the, and the history details are just so good what was the strangest thing that you discovered along the way in your research oh i didn't discover anything particularly strange as such um the period was one i'd studied back in college so i had a grounding if you will i think what was fascinating to me the most was learning about the levels of industrialization that were happening up there at that time. Um, I now know a lot more about Rochester than I did before. <laughs> and just the the railroads and everything that was, was pushing 
up in that direction back then. And if things had gone even slightly differently, upstate New York would look very differently now in terms of industrialization, in terms of um, density. A lot of what I was studying happened prior to the book, but reading about the the strike breaking, which was not, it was, it was depressing and it was sad. And that's a portion of our history that we pretty much ignore. And I don't think we should. It was, it was not pretty. When you're writing historical fiction, where is the line between too much detail or too much research and knowing what helps the story and what doesn't help the story? Hmm. Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Uh, the advantage I have is that I can throw as much as I want to on the page when I'm writing and then I can pare it down. I think probably most historical fiction writers, whether they're writing fantasy or mainstream fiction, probably over-research and have too much information. And then we have to go through and figure out, okay, um, you know, what do I use? What do I not use? The answer to how do you know how to stop is your deadline comes up and taps you on the shoulder and says, get your head out of that rabbit hole, get to work. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd still be in there. I mean, I, I joke sometimes on Twitter. I'm like, and I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. You guys won't see me for a while. Somebody send a pizza. Uh, because things are just kind of like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's follow that. It's, it is definitely a, um, a risk of the job. That all of a sudden, you're like, I should have been working two hours ago. Damn. <laughs> but look at all the cool stuff you learn, right? Oh, I, I joke that my brain is basically like a storeroom. And I learn facts and I pick and, you know, as I'm going through my day, I pick up facts. They, I throw them into my storeroom. And occasionally something will knock against something else. I open the door, everything falls out, and that's a story. That's where I get my ideas. Is this the first historical fiction fantasy that you've written because you've written you've written many books um, yeah I know that you did weird westerns you've done urban fantasy you've done vineyard fantasy which you may have mm -hmm. created the entire genre for that <laughs> uh, well technically the devil's west which is the weird west is historical fantasy because um when I was writing those books which are predicated on the idea that the Louisiana Purchase never happened that Francis Bannon, et cetera, had never owned the lands to sell to the United States and had remained an independent and magical um, territory. But outside of the territory, all of the history that was happening that is referenced and all of the politics is exactly what happened in our world. Hmm. Every single reference I made to the president, to wars, to um, uh, Lewis and Clark's journey, all of that was accurate. So that was a lot of fun trying to build that in, in as accurate a world as I could in within a setting that had absolutely no history, that had no written history to, to borrow from. So that I consider that to be, to be historical fantasy. It was alternate historical fantasy, the same as this is, but I really like taking the very strong bones of reality and then making it weird. I, I also wanted to talk, I'm well, gush is probably a more accurate word, about botheration. 
which is the best name for a dog ever, first of all. This is the 120-pound hound that is the guardian animal companion for the Harkers. We're not going to get into exactly what botheration turns out to be because that's for people who read the book. But I noticed this really continues your tradition of writing about really great animals in your stories. What do animal characters bring for you in a story? What's the attraction? Um, for me, a lot of the attraction is... Uh, how we react to them. And I'm laughing because right now I'm between them, my cat and my dog who are trying to kind of play with each other. Um, and by kind of, I mean the dog wants to play with the cat and the cat wants nothing to do with it. So if you hear a scuffle, that's what's happening. Um, how people react to animals is fascinating to me because we do react differently to them than we do to people. But also an animal character, if done properly, and by properly, I mean realistically. Um, father is very much a dog. Uh, Flatfoot in Devil's West is very definitely a mule. But in that sense, they have their own solid personalities and they react to things in a very particular way that gives additional depth to a scene. It's not just people react, people react, people react. It's a different kind of reaction. And people play differently off of that. You can do different things with an animal character. You talked a bit about how communities in your writing are very important to you. And I'm wondering, um, you know, you wrote this book during a pandemic, which has probably been one of the strangest points in any of our lives. And I guess where we had to redefine community in many ways as we were so isolated. Did writing a book during this particular time, how, was that different for you than, than other books? Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a writer who wasn't having to differently learn their craft during pandemic. You know, most of us are, are um, introverts. We like spending time alone, but we also need to be around other people just to recharge our batteries in terms of creative sense so that all the voices we hear aren't just the ones in our heads. But also it was draining emotionally and physically and mentally pandemic was draining for everybody. And if you're trying to live with that and then also trying to create another world entirely, I think a lot of us burned ourselves out and everybody was taking longer to write and figuring out, okay, how do I do this under these conditions? Especially people who had families who were now stuck at home and couldn't get you know, a couple hours of quiet to work in. Mm. So yeah. It definitely was more difficult. I also, I lost my mom pretty much at the start of writing this book. So there was that additional stressor. I, I hate that phrase, lost. My mom died at the beginning. Um, so there was a lot of emotional stuff going on. And I think a lot of times getting up and writing was an act of defiance, of hmm. uh, saying, I'm not down yet. And I think some of that probably got, found its way into the book. I, I remember, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and of course in two years since, um, people saying, oh, I'm going to have so much time, I'll just write all the books now. And not really understanding, <laughs> you know, that it's not quite that easy, especially um, for professionals who are already there. Just like you said, it just became so hard to work. Yeah, we... and the fact that publishing basically shut down as well yeah. did not help matters. Will we see more of the Harkers and Botheration? Botheration gets his own book, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will. 
We will. I actually am um, working on the second book now. Uh, it's, it's actually a short, funny story. I had originally contracted to write two standalone novels and I handed in uh, what was then called Huntsman. And my editor read it and called me and said, I know uh, you're working on this other book, but can we have a sequel? <laughs> and I went, uh, okay. Uh, and since then, the, a friend of mine joked that I, I am incapable of writing a single book. It always ends up being a series. And I've already, in the course of researching for the second book, I was like, oh, and this would be a good idea for the third book and the fourth book. And, and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so that's, so the answer is yes. Um, there's also, I've sold a short story set in the universe dealing with other characters and um, probably at some point in the very near future on my website, we're going to have a short story um, detailing how Rosemary and Aaron met botheration. Oh. So he, do, he, he does get his own short story, kind of. All right, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Ann, thank you so much for talking with me today. That was my pleasure. Thank you. Uncanny Times, along with her many other books, is available now. You can find out more at lauraangilman.com or follow her on Twitter at L.A. Gilman. Coming up next week, I talk with Ithaca author Rachel Dickinson about her new book, The Loneliest Places, Loss, Grief, and the Long Journey Home. It's a beautiful and heartbreaking collection of essays about her life after her son's suicide and the journey from despair to hope. And coming up over the next few weeks, I'll be talking with Lisa McNair about her book, Dear Denise, Letters to the Sister I Never Knew. It's a collection of letters to her older sister, Denise, who was murdered in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And we'll celebrate Thanksgiving with Rossi and Estepolo. Her new book is Sweet Land of Liberty, A History of America in 11 Pies. I can't wait to dig in. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>